0: Stages of spiritual growth. We've been walking through the month of October looking at what the Bible calls the stages of spiritual growth. Uh, We began with an unusual stage. The very first one is the stage of death. Uh, We all enter into life by first being dead. Paul would say it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And then goes on to talk about, but by the grace of God, you've been born again. And and when you turn over to John's gospel, John tells the story of a man coming to Jesus at night by the name of Nicodemus. And Jesus just stuns him right off the bat, right out of the gate by saying, unless one is born again, he'll never see the kingdom of God. And thus you get this concept of new birth that takes place. John is fascinating as an author in that John, of all the New Testament writers, Paul does a good bit of this, but John's really good at it. He looks at these various stages and talks about them. For instance, if you turn over to 1 John 2, he goes from the birth stage to then the children's stage. Notice what he says. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Now, if you read that, you'd say, well, John's just addressing people as children. No. Watch what he does next. I'm writing to you, fathers. Goes to a different group of people in the church there that he's writing to, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I like the way the Passion Translation does it. I remind you, dear children, and so again, Translates it the same way, dear children. But notice the second paragraph, I remind you fathers and mothers. Because that's really who he's talking about. He's talking to those who have matured in faith so that they are having spiritual children. And he's not talking here about biological fathers and mothers. He's talking about spiritual fathers and mothers. And then notice the next one. And I remind you, young people, young adults, you have defeated the evil one. And so if you notice there, John tells us that there are these four stages after death that we go through. Birth, childhood, young adult, and then parents. Now, last week I introduced a concept, and and listen, you're not going to find this concept anywhere. You can find Syndrome X. That's a legitimate physical problem that a small number of people have in the world. But as soon as I saw it, I thought, A lot of us sometimes experience spiritual syndrome X. Syndrome X, as a physical ailment, is when the body literally stops growing. You get up about age two, and your body just stops. Your brain doesn't develop. Your bones don't grow. You don't grow in height. You don't grow in weight. You literally stop growing at about age two, three, right in there. And you could live, we looked at a lady last week that lived to be 20 years old and still looked like a two-year-old. Well, unfortunately, there are some Christians that do the same thing. They don't grow. They don't mature. Jesus knew that would happen in his sermon on, on the soils, the parable of the soils. He says, the seed that fell among thorns, it stands for disciples of mine who, I mean, they start growing. But then life's worries and riches and pleasures begin to choke it so that, notice the word there, it does not mature. Jesus knew that probably all of us, at various points in times, struggle to mature. I mean, have you ever had someone to say to you, just grow up? Just grow up! You know, I, I mean, June says it all the time to me, and I'm like, okay. I will, one of these days, you know, just grow up. Jesus says, my followers need to grow up. And sometimes they don't. And and then I've asked for the last two weeks, and I want to continue asking, how can we know when someone has spiritual X syndrome? How can we know when someone is stuck in a certain stage of spiritual development? And the answer is just listen to them. Listen to them. Talk to them. And listen to how they respond. Listen to what they talk about. Listen to what they're interested in and you'll be able to tell how they got to a certain level and then stopped growing. Today's stage of spiritual growth, as we look at these various stages, is one that's called child or adolescence. Now, I, w- I want to make a point here before we move on in looking at this particular one. We're looking at spiritual stages, okay? There's another study out here. Own own faith stages, and they in many ways parallel each other, even though they're not identical. Uh, faith stages has has been a result of a lot of sociological study. There was a man named Westerhoff. He just died last year, John Westerhoff, American theologian, who came out with a book in the nineteen uh, well 1970s, 1976 when it was published, entitled "Will Our Children Have Faith?" And in that particular book, he basically looks at how faith develops in the life of believers. Okay, now again, it's not from a spiritual perspective. It's more from a sociological perspective, but they run parallel. He begins by talking about, we all begin, if we begin by going to church with our parents, we begin a faith that's called experiential faith. Okay, experienced faith. I mean, when I started going to church, I believed in God. Why? Because mom and dad believed in God. Okay? That's why I did. I went to church, and I believed in Jesus. And Jesus loves me. Do you know how I know Jesus loves me? Because the song says so. Right? I mean, one of the first songs you learn when you go to church is, Jesus loves me, this I know. How do you know that? For the Bible tells me so. Yeah. Well, actually, it needs to say for mom and dad tells me so, but that's beside the point. You yeah. know. I mean, it's experiential faith. And so we begin to believe in God. Why? Because mom and dad believes in God. They go to church. We go to church. They go to Sunday school. We go to Sunday school. They go to truck or tree. Had to work that one in. We go to truck or tree. All right? You move from this experienced faith, Westerhoff said, to what's called affiliative faith, which is the one we're looking at today. It's the parallel of the child-adolescent spiritual growth faiths. And, and a lot of us, in fact, I had a lot of you to hold up your hands last week. A lot of us obey the gospel when we get to be around 12, 13, 14, right in those kind of late childhood, early adolescent years. And what's fascinating about this level of faith is that that faith develops oftentimes in line with the development of faith in our friends. In other words, we have friends at, at, at Sunday school. We have friends in the youth group. We go to Bible camp, and the next thing you know, we watch our, our friends coming to faith, and then guess what happens? We come to faith. Because our friends have said, you know what, Jesus is important to me, and we're like, okay, if it's important to them, he needs to be important to me, and we make the decision. Can I ask you a question again? How many of you, when you got baptized, were either baptized the same time or within a, or within a week of someone who was your friend? Would you raise your hand? How many? Okay, handful did. Not as many as I thought would. I mean, if you've ever been to Bible camp, you've ever been to impact, it's dominoes. I mean, if one person obeys the gospel, you better get ready. You're going to have them just boom, 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 boom. Here they go. It was Kevin and Philip. Kevin and Philip. i have been thinking about being baptized a long time, but I was scared. You know, I was a young kid. I was afraid of walking down the aisle. How long will the preacher keep me under the water, you know? I mean, you ask all those crazy questions, you know? And and, and I, was, I kept wanting to be baptized, but boy, the invitation song, I'd hang on to the pew, you know? And then one Sunday, I'm sitting there, and the invitation song is sung, and there goes Kevin, there goes Philip. They're in my Sunday school class. They're friends of mine, and they become Christians. And I'm like, if Philip and Kevin's got the courage to do it, I can have the courage to do it. Now, they did it Sunday morning. I wasn't that courageous. I did it on a Sunday night. You're like, why? Not near as many people in the church building, right? You know, you're kind of like, okay. But it's affiliative faith. And, of course, when you become a Christian at that age, there are certain traits that you have that's going to be true of this particular faith right here as well, even though this one can happen in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, I mean, depending on when you obey the gospel, you'll go through these phases. Watch Paul. 1 Thessalonians 2. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. Paul had just established this church, had baptized many of these people. They're his children in the faith. And notice what he says to them. Encouraging and comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God. I look at those phrases there, encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God, and that reminds me of what parents are told to do in passages like Ephesians 6. I mean, fathers, do not exasperate your children. You bring them up in the training, instruction, nurture, consolation. I mean, a lot of different words that can be used here to describe what it's like for a father and a mother to raise their kids. Same thing spiritually for Paul. Paul would write to Philemon, a man he had very likely baptized. Philemon was a Christian, but he was also a slave owner. And, and of course, that's a topic for another time. But, but while preaching and teaching in prison, Paul had come across a slave who had evidently been arrested, whose name was Onesimus. And as Paul's talking to Onesimus, you know, who was your owner? And he says, a man by the name of Philemon in Colossae. And Paul's like, "What? what who would you say? Philemon and Klaus say. I know Philemon. You know Philemon, I know Philemon. Coincidence? Probably not, right? And the next thing you know, Paul's baptizing Onesimus. Onesimus gets out of jail, serves his time, and Paul writes to Philemon. And he says, although I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Pardon the pun, but I love that. I mean, Paul said, I could, as an apostle, command you. But listen, you're my child in the faith. And watch what he says to me. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. One of the things I like about getting old is you can use it in your favor. I mean, it is so neat. I mean, you're like, uh, could you hold that door door for me? Yes, sir. Yeah. I'm amazed at how many people open doors for me now. I mean, I go to the gym and they're there, here, come on in, you know, and I'm like, do I look that bad, you know? But I mean, Paul uses the old card and he says, I'm going to appeal to you for my son Onesimus." And then notice, who became my son while I was in chains. And then he says to Philemon, by the way, perhaps God allowed this to happen so that you could have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave. By the way, Fleetman, he's now your brother. Notice all that family language. Paul would oftentimes call Timothy his true son in the faith. I mean, Timothy had been baptized after Paul's first missionary journey. Paul had likely baptized his, his mom and his grandmother. We don't know that for sure, but it, it appears that he may have done that. And when he comes back during the second missionary journey with Silas, they said, Listen, you got to meet this young man named Timothy. Something special about him. And Paul takes him and carries him with him, checks with, you know, hey, mom, do you mind if he goes with me on this journey? And, and then he ends up just literally traveling with Paul all over the Mediterranean, establishing churches. And all through his life, Paul's working with him as if he is his own son. And and when you begin to look at the words that describe this phrase, and then look at how Jesus and Paul and others worked with people, you see how that was true even in our lives. We've been looking at words that describe each of these various phases. The words today that describe those who are in the children-adolescent phase, number one is self-centeredness. And by the way, all of us remember this. When we were in school, you know, whether it's middle school or high school, Can we just be honest? It was about me. It was about us. You know, I never did once say to my best friend, you know what? I think that pretty girl over there wants to go out with you. I wouldn't do that. I was hoping she'd go out with me, and she finally did, but it took me a long time. All right? I mean, you sat there, and you're like, oh, man alive. Uh, I mean, it you, you were focusing on you. How do you stand out? Am I going to be the, you know, quarterback of the football team, the head cheerleader? Am I going to be, you know, the valedictorian or the salutatorian? Am I going to be the comic in the class? How do I stand out in all of these people? And what's fascinating is that we see a lot of times in our Christian lives us doing the same thing. James and John, who had been with Jesus now almost three years And they come up to him on the way to Jerusalem to be crucified. And they said, teacher, we want to ask you to do something for us, whatever we ask. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? If y'all remember the story, they said, let one of us sit on your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. I want you to think about that. Good old James and John. Lord, we want to be on this side, vice president, and this side, secretary of state. We want to be the top dogs. I mean, not for one second did they they say, you know what, you probably need to get Simon the Zealot to be head of the Defense Department. They didn't bring that up. You know, you probably need to get Peter to be press secretary. He loves to talk. They didn't bring that up. It was about them. I mean, they were focused on themselves. And of course, the sad part is, when the other apostles heard about it, they were upset. I mean, how dare you jump the line in front of us? All of us go through it. Of where all we think about is, what about me? Don't split up my small group. I like it the way it is right now. It's my small group. Came to a church, I was an education minister, and one of the things in the church was they had this young adult class that had about 60 people in it. It was huge. And, and I'd been studying church growth principles, and one of the things you learn about small groups is is that small groups get up to a certain size, and then they can't absorb any more people. That's what happens to small groups. That's why churches, once they get past 40 or 50, maybe 60 people, they begin to form what oftentimes people call cliques. This church has got too many cliques. All cliques are small groups that are created to try to absorb people in them. There's nothing wrong with them when they're created for the right purpose. But oftentimes, we get in a small group. We've been in the small group forever. It's gotten as large as it can get. And what happens is, as people come into our church and they try to join the small group, they end up frustrated because they never fit in. And because you couldn't absorb it. It's like a sponge. You know, you drip water in a sponge at a certain point, guess what the sponge starts doing? leaking the water out. Can't hold anymore. Small groups are like that. And yet, oftentimes, a small group is about my small group. And the last thing I want to do is to split it so that other people can get into a small group. Really? Or what about this one? I don't like singing new songs, William. I want to sing songs I'm familiar with. When William told me he was introducing a new song, I said, oops, I've got that in the sermon. And y'all, I've heard you've heard that. You've probably said it. And if you said it this morning, shame on you. That's a beautiful song. Let it rain. Let it rain. What a beautiful. I mean, awesome song. And and oftentimes it's like, yeah, but I want the songs I'm familiar with. Isn't that true of all of us? Papa, boy, he would fuss at my mother. Good night. Mom, in 1955, went to Memphis with Dad. They had been married a year or two, and they went to Memphis to, to a Hank Snow concert. And the and only problem is, they didn't go to hear Hank Snow. They went to hear the guy introducing the the, the, the uh, concert, a guy by the name of Elvis Presley. And Mom and Dad got to see him as an introduction act. And my papa thought that was the most, godless entertainment he had ever heard or seen. I mean, how dare you listen to Elvis Presley? Y'all know how many funerals I go to now where I hear Peace in the Valley by Elvis Presley? I mean, I've never been to a funeral where you ain't nothing but a hound dog is played, but you'll hear Peace in the Valley. And then my mother did the same thing. I remember mother getting in the car one time. I was listening to my favorite radio station. She said, how can you listen to music like that? Why don't you listen to somebody like Elvis Presley? Okay. Every generation does that. I had a church growth consultant one time to tell me, your church is going to have to decide whether it's going to be contemporary or whether it's going to be traditional. Y'all remember that phase? where all of our churches were changing the services and they'd have an early service contemporary and then a late service that was traditional or vice versa. And, and, and when he told me that we were going to have to do the same thing, I said, we're not doing it. I said, all that does is creates two churches. I said, we need to be a people of God who are so patient with one another and love one another that I'm fine with singing songs that people older than me love to sing, as well as singing songs that the youngest people in our church love to sing. I mean, brothers and sisters, if we cannot allow worship to incorporate everyone's interest, and you say, that's difficult to do. No, it's not. William did it this morning. Blake does it every week. I love this church because of that. We sing new songs. We sing old songs. We sing old songs in new ways. I mean, we do a lot of that. I didn't get anything out of church today. I taught a worship class many years ago at Lipscomb. John Micah, first time I met John Micah, was in worship in Swain way back in the late 90s. And one of the things I brought up in that class at Lipscomb was that you've got one of two ways to approach church services, worship services. Number one, what am I going to get out of it? Or number two, What am I going to put into it? And let me tell you, if you come to church for what you get out of it, you've bought into consumerism when it comes to faith, and you'll never find a church that will please you. They don't exist. Or if you find one, it'll only please you for a while. At some point in time, you've got to ask, am I going to give or to just receive? Now, do do we want you to carry something away? Of course we do. It's not either or, but it is both and. And I've oftentimes found that the people who get the most out is because they're the people who put the most in. Second word is idealism. And, and, and I love those who go through this phase because it's a phase of where, I mean, you find the truths of the gospel and they're so exciting to you that you just are like, boy, this is it. And everybody's got to agree with me. everybody. You have to agree with me. If you don't, you're in trouble. I think of the Pharisees in Acts 15. I mean, a whole group of Pharisees had become Christians, and yet they were so hung on Phariseeism that when the Gentiles started coming in, they said, hang on, the Gentiles must be circumcised. They were required to keep the law of Moses. They were idealistic. I mean, we've got to fix these Gentiles before they can be Christians. And Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James and John said, oh, no. No, that's not the way it works. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. What do you do in that case? The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. And then he says this, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they'll stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. I mean, when my way is the only way, it's going to be a miserable life. And we hear this oftentimes. Everything is either black or white. There is no gray. Folks, look at my hair. There is gray, I promise you. I mean, there's gray in life. There's always been gray in life. And why I love idealists. I do. I mean, they they just want to see everything so clearly. But oftentimes in doing that, they drive people away because they don't learn how to be patient and gentle and kind and long-suffering, and then the last word is overconfidence or lack of confidence, and oftentimes it swings either one or the other. I mean, either I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength, even though I'm not very mature yet, or I can't do anything. Paul would say, Timothy, even though Timothy had been with him quite a long time, quit letting people look down on you because you're young. Timothy, stop it! because you're in your 20s doesn't mean you can't lead the church of the living God. We oftentimes say that teenagers is the church of the future. No, they're not. They're the church of the present. We need to realize that. And what a difference they make in our churches. Paul would later write to Timothy right before he died because he's so concerned about him. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid. Timothy, stop it. I'm fixing to be gone the time of my departure is hey, hand. You've got to stand up. And you go to the end of the book of Hebrews and you find that he actually did. Oftentimes people will say what we need to focus on is helping people to be more spiritual. I mean, these are those who are so confident. If we just spoke focus on those who who, who are, are are not as quite as spiritual, boy, we'll get everybody there. Be real careful and be either overconfident or underconfident. And here's the underconfident. I could never lead someone to Jesus. Yes, you can. All of us can. And it begins in a very simple way. Hi, I'm Les Chapman. It begins with a relationship. So what do spiritual children, adolescents need? Here's your take home today. Spiritual parents who help them develop spiritual habits. That's what we do as physical parents. You know, we start teaching our children how to make their bed, how to pick up their toys. We tell them, guess what? You're fixing to start school. I'm fixing to do what? Yeah, we want you educated. I mean, we teach we teach our children habits, habits that are going to bless them the rest of their life. We've got to do the same for, for those who are spiritual children. Paul said prayer is one of the most important. He's constantly saying to these new churches he has created. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. Paul said, listen, you develop a good prayer life, you're on your way to a good spiritual life. Number two, we need spiritual parents and teachers who provide spiritual wisdom. One of the things about being a child or an adolescent, we just don't have experience yet. That's what's true of all of us. You know, and so we need we need those to come along beside us who says, I've been down this path before. Let me help you. Paul would pray to the Ephesians, I keep asking that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, will give you a spirit of wisdom. He prayed for that. And then number three, teaching on how to relate to other members of God's family. We are human. We've got to learn to relate that way. And by the way, I want you to think about the way you related to your siblings when you were young as opposed to when you got older. I still remember coming home. I'd bought a pair of boxing gloves when I was in high school. Thought by the way, that's when the movie Rocky came out, y'all remember that? I thought I was gonna be the next Rocky. I was more like the little pep, okay? But anyway, I had these pair of boxing gloves and I came in from college and my little brother said let's box. He had some friends over. He wanted to show them how good he was, how tough he was. I said, you don't want to box me. He said, yes, I do. I outweighed him by 30, 40 pounds. And he said, let's fight. I said, all right. And so we fought. Next morning, my boxing gloves were gone. Mom had seen the fight and said, never again in my house. I never did find them. I mean, they were gone. Why? Because we need to be taught how to treat one another as brothers. Every morning now on the way to the gym, I call my brother up. How you doing? Doing great. How you doing? How's your day? Same as it was yesterday when you called. Okay. You know what I mean. I mean, I'll call him up sometimes on Tuesday night on the way to the prison. Then Wednesday morning when I get up on the way to the gym. And I'm like, anything happened since last night? No. What about you? No. All right. See you later. I mean, why do you do that? Because we're brothers. We need to treat one another that way in the church. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another. Love. it's that simple. So as we go this week, number one, how's the practice of spiritual habits coming along in your life? Without spiritual habits, you will not grow. It is that simple. Amen. Amen, John. Got to have the spiritual habits. Number two, do you respond with those who see things different with you with love and forbearance? We're family. Let's act like family. And then number three, Ask God to help you focus on serving others instead of serving yourself. It's not about me. It's about others because it's ultimately about God. That's the way we all need to live. If you have a need today of any kind, we have elders who will be in the front foyer as well as the back foyer. They have elders on their name tag. If you need a prayer, they'd be happy to pray with you. If you'd like to be baptized, they'd be be glad to arrange it for you. Or if I can help you, I'll be down front here. June and I are going to be greeting in the very back corner this morning. If you're a guest, we would love to meet you. Back left corner as you go out the front foyer, we would love to meet you. Come and, and let us do that. If you have any needs, why don't you come? It's together we stand and say, Oh,